I am joined by Michael Cow, former hedge fund manager and private family office investor. Michael, welcome back to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? So excited to be back. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, Michael. We're recording uh, the afternoon of Tuesday, March 14th, and the regional bank stocks, which absolutely tanked in price, there were a lot of worries about bank runs and insolvencies. They have really found their footing today, and it seems like everything is going to be okay. So my first question for you is, what do you think of this bank panic, and do you think it's over? Well, look, I think I think this this BTFP facility I tweeted out earlier should not be confused with the BTFD signal, right? Because I think what it means is that it allows uh, the the powers that be to essentially seize irresponsible banks, right? And so, to me, it the facility is kind of like a controlled burn. Um, if you will, um, it's they they had to uh, protect depositors to prevent um, the contagion from spreading. And you know, just so you know where I stand on this thing, I mean, I think that if you are uh, a depositor uh, and especially an unsecured, sorry, an uninsured depositor, you are an unsecured creditor to that bank, and so you should at least be doing a modicum of due diligence on on the on the bank, especially if you're going to be parking hundreds of millions of dollars of cash there. And so clearly that did not happen. And I don't like the fact that there is moral hazard uh, by uh, not haircutting the depositors at all here. But if there's anything that I think the, the, all of the authorities learn from the great financial crisis, it is uh, the, the danger of having inconsistent policy. So what I mean by that is, you remember like about a week before uh, Lehman Brothers failed, um, Fannie and Freddie were, were seized and put into conservatorship. Total surprise to them, right? Um, you could argue, and I, I would argue that uh, that didn't need to happen. But then there, there was also uh, uh, sort of unilateral uh, decisions made within that capital stack that were inconsistent. Um, you know, you had obviously uh, Lehman go, but then and they seized WAMU, but they chose to save Countrywide right before they shut WAMU down, and then right after that they saved Wachovia. So it was a complete um, haphazard uh, policy that, and you know, look, the, all all of uh, th that was an unprecedented situation, obviously. Uh, very, very different from what we have now. Um, so I think um, over the weekend, I was, I was tweeting that, you know, I very, even before uh, this BTFP facility came out, I said that my expectation would be some kind of surgical solution, uh, but not involve a, a shotgun or a bazooka solution that entailed a change uh, in policy stance. And so to me, to me, I'm I'm personally uh, quite surprised at this at at the uh, big risk on, uh, especially like in Bitcoin and tech stocks and whatnot. Uh, I'm not surprised in like the relief rally of of the uh, of the banking uh, sector because that's frankly the only equity sector that really experienced true distress. Um, but the rest of the stuff is again is just symptomatic to me of a regime that is still awash with too much liquidity. And I'm sure we'll talk about the CPI. I mean, look, the CPI this morning is definitely uh, still running on the hotter side. Uh, 
And it's not as if it's a one-off, right? We've had very strong uh, employment reports. So I, I really think going back to, you know, BTFP not being BTFD, uh, I don't think this risk rally is real. Um, I, don't, I don't think it has legs. Um, I think that people will be surprised that, uh, that the Fed uh, is going to not wilt as, as every, a lot, many asset classes seem to be pricing in, right? I mean, I, I'm very, very surprised by, I, I expected uh, the, the yield curve to kind of breathe a little bit after, after this incredible flight to safety. Uh, to to T bills especially right over the last couple of days, I think I, I think there's probably still a little bit of angst that's keeping the yield curve that way. So I'm watching that carefully as some sort of corroboration that uh, things are indeed sort of ring fenced and calming down. Um, but um, I don't I don't think uh, the the easing path that the yield curve is currently pricing in. Um, is is going to hold. Michael, that's great. I want to ask you about what do you think the Federal Reserve is going to do and the, the yield curve dynamics you just referenced. But real quick, based on your prior comment, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you would give the response that the FDIC, Federal Reserve, Treasury announced on Sunday. On a moral hazard basis, you'd give it maybe a C as a grade. What would you give it the grade for financial stability? In other words, how effective will this be in preventing future bank panics? And do you think uh, you know, future uh, bank runs will be likely, unlikely in the near future? Well, from that perspective, I would, I would give it an A because they, I, I do think that they, what, again, back to my, uh, my comment about the importance of consistency, you know, as as repugnant as I I and many find that there 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 was a bailout of depositors here, I understand why they had to do it because see, bank runs are a look the fractional reserve banking system is one that is based on trust and ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time it works really really well. Right. But the problem is that when you have mass hysteria, especially now, really, really amplified by social media in, a, in an unprecedented way, um, it can really spread like wildfire and it can metastasize into something bad, even with responsible banks. We saw that during during GFC. Now, I don't it, it's 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 good. It's never re, uh, possible to prove a counterfactual. But in this case, I even think that if even if they actually uh, had haircut depositors, I still don't think this was a systemic issue. You probably would have had a couple of uh, bank failures, um, a couple more bank failures, um, but I still don't think this was systemic. But given what they did, uh, you know, they, it, it, I think it, the, the, the banking scare is done. Now, what what else lurks underneath is the question, right? And I think uh, I, I think you're going to see some real problems in the shadow banking sector, right? Well, I, as far as um, hedge funds, as far as um, you know, private equity, venture capital funds, um, endowments, even, right? Um, so so you know, so I, I definitely think there's going to be more stress. So. 
I just can't emphasize enough that this is not, you know, BTFP is not BTFD. <laughs> right. And BTFP is the Fed's program announced on Sunday, bank term uh, funding program, which allows banks to pledge assets as collateral to the Fed, and the Fed will give them 100 cents on the dollar. It's a term loan up to one year. So giving the banks a lot of breathing room and BTFD, of course, stands for, you know, buy the blank uh, uh, dip. <laughs> but but um, it's, important, it's important to note that like the BTFP facility, it's not like it's a complete free lunch. It comes at a cost. And I'm going to paraphrase Fed guy Joseph Wang on this, right? On a space that he said a couple of months ago, he said, you know, the the Fed, the Federal Reserve, but, you know, I'll expand it to, to all, all of the various uh, agencies and uh, uh, powers that be. Um, they have now more surgical tools to provide liquidity at a price. But, but that price might be that uh, your bank uh, gets resolved, right? Uh, and so that's not, uh, it's not a free lunch, certainly not for investors. Um, so, so um I kind of think, of, you know, I love Greek mythology, right? So it's kind of like if you if you take if you partake of the pomegranate seed, you might not make it out of Hades again. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. W tell us about the shadow banking sector. Why do you? What are the risks you see there? And might it be possible to draw a connection to the actual banking sector because the shadow banking sector and the actual banking sector are very connected, as we saw with Silicon Valley Bank. Well, it's just that the shadow banking sector, you know, I mean, that that really covers a broad swath of all, you know, financial intermediaries, right? From hedge funds to private equity to venture capital to endowments. I mean, and obviously they're they're not held to as stringent standards as the banking sector and certainly don't have uh, are not subject to FDIC or CIPIC uh, insurance. Right. Every financial blow up in history happens for one reason. Asset liability mass mismatch. That's almost always the case, right? Unless, uh, unless it's fraud, out, outright fraud, right? But even outright fraud situations, right? Usually they're, they're perpetuated until that asset, there's a forcing function on a fundamental asset liability mismatch, right? And so, so, so I, I think over the weekend, there was a lot of FUD and angst over Schwab, for instance, right? And everybody, talking about how you know they've got these big you know held to maturity losses blah 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 but you know what when interest rates rise everybody who has fixed income securities or for, for that matter any securities are going to have held to maturity losses um but again the for what's the forcing function for that asset liability mismatch the forcing function is a bank run now when schwab bank has you know over 80% of its customer deposits uh, FDIC insured versus a Silicon Valley bank where that equivalent number was less than 3%. That's a huge difference. That's just a massive, massive difference. So, so I, I, I see the two as completely like night and day. It was, a, I, I think the, the failure at Silicon Valley bank is, was a mismanagement on both the asset side and on the liability side of its balance sheet. And so back to your question on the shadow banks, um, who knows, right? I mean, we saw a, a snapshot of uh, Bill Huang, remember? When, how long was that ago? Was that almost two years two ago? Two years. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, think, I, I think there's going to be more of that coming. Um, it's kind of inevitable with this type of a, a you know, steep uh, rate hike. But again, 
So, so then why do I think that the Fed won't pivot? Because at the end of the day, the big picture that I've had, the big picture thesis that I've had over the last year and a half to two years now is that we are in a fundamentally different regime that, than we've experienced over the last several decades, where there is a structural inflation that is not going to be tamped down very easily. And so what I was explaining uh, yesterday in, in one of the spaces that I participated in is, um, um, okay, so, so let's take the, the oil uh, industry, right? There is a structural uh, supply inelasticity, uh, I'll just say, right? Structural supply inelasticity that will not be fixed with, with, uh, with uh, you know, monetary policy, right? It, it, it can only be fixed through long-term industrial policy and, and investment, right? So, so, so while it's true that monetary policy is a blunt tool and can't solve everything, when it's all you got, the, and, and you've, got, you've got supply inelasticities built up in multiple sectors, the only tool that you uh, have is monetary policy to basically shift down the aggregate demand curve uh, and to not let it bleed into other sectors. I think that where the, where the Fed really screwed up was, you know, look, you could argue that the, the unprecedented stimulus uh, was, was needed in 2020 to not tip the, you know, the world into recession. But we clearly uh, overdid it in 2021, right? Um, and and they, they, they let the, the Pandora's box stay open for way too long. To me, this, in, this inflation started off as, as a uh, commodity-based inflation. And it basically leapt into many, many other sectors. And now it's going to be very, very difficult to shut that Pandora's box. So connect this for me, Michael. On Monday, Silicon Valley Bank was taken over by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Treasury yields collapsed. There was a huge bid to safety. The same thing happened on Monday as the Signature Bank uh, takeover was announced on Sunday. So on Friday and Monday, the past two trading days, uh, the two, I think the two-year Treasury rallied close to 100 basis points. I think that's the biggest Treasury rally since 1982, a huge rush to safety. For long-term securities as well as short-term, you had a bull steepening, which is never a good sign for the the economy. And so people saying, "Oh, the market was pricing in the Fed is done." You know, maybe. And, and by the and, and by the way, that rate fall might have blown somebody up. We just that we don't know about yet. <laughs> yeah, and um, the, the irony uh, is, rates collapsing would have actually done a lot to help Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. So uh, the market went in from pricing a 50 basis point increase uh, in the Federal Reserve meeting next week in, in eight days to they're not even going to do 25. Uh, now it seems uh, rates have gone up a little bit. And so there seems to be uh, the market was indicating the Federal Reserve had to choose between financial stability, the banking system will be safe, or price stability. If you if you want to save the banking system, again, I'm you know intentionally making it very simple, uh, you have to stop rate hikes and perhaps even cut rates. But there goes your fight to, to, to fight inflation. Uh, meanwhile, if you want to go on the inflation front, if you keep on hiking interest rates, there are going to be more Silicon Valley banks. Uh, is this a trade-off that you think the Fed has to actually make? And if so, which will it choose? 
I don't think the trade-off is here. In fact, this morning I tweeted exactly to this point, and this is exactly what I said. I said, many think we've reached the point where the Fed is facing a real trade-off between hiking versus not hiking slash easing. The surgical nature of this BTFP just eliminated that trade-off, and the hot CPI just ensured no pivot, in my in my opinion. So, so I, I think, look, there will be a trade-off. I, I think the trade-off comes later this year when unemployment starts to finally tick up. But let's just put, put this into perspective, right? I think Jay Powell would like to see the unemployment rate. He, I think he'd be perfectly okay with a 4.5% unemployment rate. That's not a loss of 20,000 jobs or 200,000. That's two, probably 2 million jobs, right? So for, for all of the belly aching uh, by the startup community and venture capital community saying, this is uh, going to create massive job losses, guess what? The Fed wants to engineer that because un unfortunately, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to sound callous about this, but this is where the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Right. And what I mean by that is inflation is the most regressive tax of all. It affects 100 percent of the population, which is what, 340 million people. Right. But if and what the Fed is is thinking about, I'm sure, is, OK, well, you know what? What's going to happen if we have two million more unemployed? Right. Um, are we. Are the other 338 million people better off? And and I would argue the the experience of the stagflationary 70s would probably argue, yes. Uh, so you've been sounding the alarm <laughs> bell about structural inflation for a while now. I've seen a, a, an argument that's become you know, a little more popular over the past few days, which is that the bank panic that started on Friday is causing a scramble for reserves, a scramble for assets, for deposits uh, at banks. And they, they're going to do everything they can to make sure depositors don't pull their money. As such, they will be less likely to lend money because they're going to be holding on to their cash. And you know, bank credit creation fuels a lot of inflation. So that will slow down the economy and reduce inflation. And we did see that in the wake of the great financial crisis. You know, even though rates were at zero, bank lending was very slow to accelerate do you buy this argument? Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, yeah, I, I buy the argument that there are long and variable lags. And yeah, and, and I even buy the argument that, that there's even a case for the Fed maybe pausing and, and, and watching. But I do think, again, given my uh, sort of commodity centricity, I think that there's a big, there's a, there's a big component of this inflation um, that is not going to be uh, easily tamped down, uh, even with all of that, right? And so, the the issue that I have is the, you know, I I could I could I could buy into the issue that maybe they need to they need to pause and just wait and see what happens, right? But um, I I have a feeling that unless they they significantly move the goalposts in terms of uh, what the what the inflation target really should be, um, they're they're not going to be in a position where they can ease this time. There was a great chart uh, that uh, that Cameron Dawson uh, posted in the space yesterday that I retweeted um, that basically showed 
you know, the core PCE over the, you know, since like the, you know, the early nineties to now. And so th that chart basically just shows that, you know, it was basically in like this tiny, tiny, tightly range, tightly uh, bound range, and then boom. Right. And so, and, and that's, that's the, the, the thesis that I've had now for almost two years now is that structural inflation changes everything. It does not, um, you know, everybody thought two years ago, if you remember, there were many, many voices who said that, oh, you know, given how much debt we have, debt, debt to GDP is going to explode and, you know, the, the Fed can never hike, blah, blah, blah. Well, here never, we Michael, never getting to, to 50 basis points, never. Exactly. But, but, I, but see, again, I mean, I, I write about the, about the dollar and I, I, and I think that, you know what, we have the capacity, you know, it, it's, it's going to suck for a while, but we, we have the capacity Yes, it will increase our deficit, but we still have that capacity to to increase that deficit until we get this situation under control. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Your, your background is, I mean, many things from convertible bond arbitrage, hedge fund, but you know a lot about commodities. So let, commodities key input into inflation. So let me ask you, let's just say, make it really simple, in year one, the price of oil is at $70. In year two, you have an oil spike, it goes to $140. And it stays at $140 by year three. Uh, the year over year change from year uh, one to two will be 100%. But from year two to three, it will be 0%, even though 140 is high. And so oil prices, not only have they you know, not continued to not increase, but they've actually, you know, they've gone down since uh, the peak of the summer of last year. So if you're not having these inflationary pressures from oil, where is it coming from? And of course, we're recording this on, on a day and you know, it's, a, it's a testament to how much is going on that we, it's only 20 minutes in, we, we I, you know, haven't talked about it. But uh, at 8.30 this morning, uh, consumer price inflation came in at 6% year over year for February, 0.4% month over month from January to February. And if you take out energy, it was 0.5% uh, month over month and 5.5% uh, year over year. Yeah, so that's, that's a great question and a valid one. I think that right in the short term, and, and if you know, for those those of you who followed, uh, you know, my tweets over the last year, probably around April of 2022, even though I'm long term uh, bullish on oil, I think mm -hmm. that I, I basically said, you know what, it's too hard to call now. I'm going to turn cautious and even outright bearish because there's, uh, I I think the negative feedback loops of a stronger dollar and and global central bank um, uh, tightening have got to feed into, into that demand. But I've also said that I think the seeds have been sown for a point sometime within this decade, I think, 
we're getting in fact it, it's gonna it's gonna be that that's even a little too far out i think that around 20 2024 2025 we're going to come perilously close to what i call the supply and demand supply demand singularity point where even a sort of uh recession impacted global demand is going to exceed all available supply so when you look at the us for instance right the us produces about 12 and a half million barrels per day um about 9 million of that comes from shale right and and most people know that the permian basin is the most prolific and promising part of the shale patch the permian you know uh, uh lakshmi lakshmi shrikumar who's the the cap the capital one analyst that i cite a lot on twitter i think she's one of the best in the industry um she thinks that the permian is is like or sorry shale in general so u.s production is likely to see uh a a short-term peak uh, but in 2024. So imagine the scenario, let's just imagine the scenario where Jay Powell um, follows the yield curve and actually blinks and starts easing by the end of this year. Okay. <clears throat> right when, okay, right when we peak production, what do you think will happen? I think that will literally bring us back to where we were at the beginning of 2021, rinse and repeat. It starts all over again. And then when, when the world is subjected to a second round of resurgent high inflation, and, uh, and by the way, this time around, because we've done some very, very stupid things, like transfer the bulk of our SPR over to China, uh, basically, right? Um, this time, uh, that that oil spike might not be to 140. It might be to 250, 300. So so it's a it's a to me that's a I don't know whether you want to call it a black swan or a gray rhino or. <laughs> Yeah, Michael, that means a lot to me because you are not an oil permeable, even though you've been very, very, very involved in the industry. You've always cautious been, yes, I'm long-term bullish, but I don't quite see this setup here. So uh, that, mean, that means a lot to me. Michael, hit me a picture of what- And, during and by the way, and, and yeah. Jack, to that point, I'm talking against my book, right? Yeah. I have, I have, I, I mentioned this at West Point when I presented my paper, right? Uh, I, I basically said, I just want everybody to know that, yes- I am a long-term investor in the oil and gas industry. However, the industrial policies that I'm promulgating to invest in the industry will result in lower commodity prices. I'm talking against my book here, both from a re policy recommendation standpoint, but also from a market call standpoint, because mm -hmm. I don't. I, I think unemployment spiking, if unemployment does start to uh, spike, I, I can't see that as as bullish in the very near term for for oil, but again, against this this longer term backdrop, I see a major uh, global. It's not just the U.S., but it's like a global um, uh, dearth of long term projects. See, it's interesting because at at, uh, at West Point, I, I met a bunch of smart people. I was pretty uh, uh, intrigued that there were some smart but misinformed voices that I interacted with who still thought that we uh, would easily achieve uh, 15 million barrels per day. Pre-COVID, the U.S. 
hit 13 million barrels per day for about a nanosecond. That was when Trump was proclaiming energy independence, right? And I think I put I put out a tweet back then. I said, "Here's what I predict. I think there was there was a chart of like our our um, uh, energy uh, our level of independence ex expressed by the our uh, I think net exports or something like that." I said, "I predict that this is going to be <laughs> basically the the nadir of 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 this independence." The so-called energy independence and here we are multiple years later and we haven't even crested that 13 million barrels per day because the shale industry as you you probably know it, it's kind of like a hamster wheel right you need to you need to yeah. run really hard on that hamster wheel just to just to replace uh just to keep up with the decline and that really hasn't happened, right? And so the the U.S. shale miracle came about uh, uh, as a result of a number of different factors that are, I I think, not going to coalesce together again anytime soon. Those factors are well, first of all, just you know, obviously the 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 technology that that went into it, but there was also tons and tons of uh, 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 capital available, right? The, the liquidity lottery benefited the, the shale revolution, absolutely. Okay, um, but but it's also because um, you know the U.S. has a a a system, an economic system where it allows uh, private ownership of mineral rights. So so there is that incentive. So we are not alone in the world with shale deposits. There, you know, if, if you look at Argentina, the Vaca Muerta has uh, big shale deposits. But why haven't been, they been like a big player? Because it's a freaking socialist country, with with and and there's lack of infrastructure, <clears throat> offtake uh, infrastructure, right? You need a lot of water infrastructure, mm -hmm. also. So, and sand, and sand. Uh, so so it literally required a, a sort of perfect storm of factors. <clears throat> to to get that to happen, but we're about to crest that. We're about to reach that peak, and so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, what's going to plug that hole? The world is awash in in fossil fuel reserves. Uh, so there's there's no lack of oil, but there's a lack of cheap oil. I really believe that. And so, unless oil is significantly higher, I think we are. Um, um, I use the term frog boiling. We, we've our, our ESG policies are basically like uh, boiling the proverbial frog in the pot, right? And we're mm -hmm. frog boiling ourselves to, into an energy crisis. And again, I focus on energy so much because it is the linchpin of inflation. <clears throat> and so that's the supply picture. Talk to me about demand. You know, I'm a I'm a young guy, so while I was an adult, you know, the the major financial crises were 2008 and um, uh, 2020, but it's my, and, and during those uh, uh, recessions, flash recessions, the price of oil absolutely collapsed. So maybe that's my impression, but what does a more quote vanilla recession look like? And if we are, you know, uh, might be approaching a vanilla recession, why might de uh, the demand not go down enough for the price of oil to decline? And you said it, the price of oil might even go up during a recession. Tell me, tell me about that. And maybe you can draw on recessions before 2008. I, I'm actually a little bit surprised 
uh, that oil, the oil prices have held up as as well as they have. And I would, and I'm, let's see, what are they doing today? I don't even know. Um, Down and up. Are they, okay, got it. Um, I I think there's a a component of uh, geopolitical risk premium that's still embedded in there. Um, Many thought that the great China reopening would create this hyperbolic move in oil. And um, I, along with, you, know, you, you probably know Alex. Uh, he's Stop. fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. We, we, we've both been on the same page uh, on this. And we ba- basically said that, uh, you know, the, the chi- China, what is China going to reopen to exactly when their product inventories are already at tank tops? I've been saying for also about a year and a half, I've been saying that the Russian oil, you're not going to basically shut off the Russian oil spigot with uh, price caps and uh, embargoes. The only way to shut off the Russian oil spigot is blockades. And we all know where that leads, right? So that hasn't happened. So Russia has not shut in. And and um, Alex and I had this conversation <clears throat> a couple of months ago about, you know, what, at the on the eve of when the EU embargoes were about to happen. And then, and then in February, you had the EU product embargoes. And the thought was, look, unless China um, really, really steps up its uh, SPR purchases, um, it seems like they're kind of, uh, you know, tapped out. And, uh, and uh, India also seems like they're kind of tapped out. So there, there was a reason, there was a, um, a cogent thesis for maybe uh, Russia uh, having to shut in, you know, one to maybe even two million barrels per day, didn't happen. It didn't happen, and so and so you you kind of wonder how how does this happen? Well, remember, China's SPR is capacity is now bigger than ours, and right. they have. Sorry, Michael, that's a strategic petroleum reserve, a nation's reserve, and uh, America yeah. had been selling it down since. May, June yeah. of last year under the Biden administration. But you're saying China has been building it up. They have. But even with all of the stockpiling, they still have a fairly uh, significant amount of capacity. Right. So I've said all along, look, the, 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 Chi- the Chinese have definitely taken advantage of that. And uh, it's very frustrating, frustrating for me to, to watch that. One of the things that we, I mean, we mentioned this in our West Point paper as well, right? Right. Said that basically, you know, the, um, we, we, we did some comparisons between the semiconductor uh, industry and the oil and gas industry and noted that, you know, while the administration seems to be taking uh, appropriate steps uh, for instance, in incentivizing uh, the reshoring of, you know, semiconductor, you know, fabrication, for instance, and I'm even supportive of some of the targeted, you know, export uh, controls um, that that we've done to to limit their ability to, um, uh, you know, continue to advance in, you know, advanced chips. But that's great. We we finally recognize the threat in the semiconductor industry. But why on earth are we still shooting ourselves in the foot in the oil and gas industry? Because that's an area where we're currently the largest producer in the world. We're producing 12 and a half barrels per day when Saudi Arabia and Russia are each producing right around 11 million barrels per day. So we're actually the largest producer. This is, this is an area where we 
have a very, very strong natural advantage, but we are kind of hobbling ourselves by gutting our SPR, by um, uh, disincentivizing investment, by shutting how, down. How uh, so are we dis- disincentivizing? Well, for instance, if you if you threaten windfall profit taxes and you threaten export bans, right, and you shut down Keystone, what what is that what is that saying? You're 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 telling all of the majors that uh, we're going to shut your business down in ten years. But oh, by the way, can you please increase production? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, like, what 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 do you expect the industry to do? Right, from a capital allocation standpoint, are they going to? You know, there's all this criticism about you know their their uh, redeployment of the cash into share buybacks. Well, they're being told that their industry is going to be shut down in in ten years. So why? Right. If you're if you're if you're uh, if you're being told that by policymakers, right? And and your choice is to either essentially uh, run a policy that shrinks the company, right? By by essentially you know buying back your own uh, capital versus you know expending tens of billions of dollars in capex. What are you going to choose to do? I mean, that's that that doesn't seem like it's rocket science to me. Um, so and, and by the way, that's that's not just a U.S. phenomenon. That's a global phenomenon. Going back to oil demand earlier, you said that you were surprised that the price of oil isn't down more given mm-hmm. how you're seeing the, the economy, the supply situation. So why is it that you see the price reaccelerating? Uh, and then also, can you talk about how the U.S. is a consumptive society, whereas you know China, a lot of their oil demand they use to produce uh, distillates. So you know they're not. You're, it's t- not a ton of jet fuel just because the Chinese economy is reopening and the the you know the refineries were running at full capacity all throughout COVID. So it comes back to so it comes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of supply inelasticity. I I see the long term longer term supply curve for oil becoming more and more inelastic. So what happens when you have an inelastic supply curve? It means that if you, it, it means that it's very, very sensitive to shifts in the demand curve, right? So if you've got like a near vertical supply curve and you've got like a, a downward shift in the demand curve because of say global recession, you could have that price of oil uh, just plummet to like, you know, 40, 50 bucks even, right? Unless OPEC supports the price, right? But again, again, similarly, when uh, the mar- when the when the world comes out of that recession, and meanwhile, the the industry is 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 even more starved of capital, and that inelastic supply curve gets more and more vertical, then you could you could have a very very uh, parabolic uh, price spike, and now with a with a, a kind of a lack of a hedge now right well i should i should say this look china in a way um china may keep a lid on a parabolic price spike it may because they have they have built up this big spr but then again right then again their spr is not even necessarily that big relative to their population size so Mm -hmm. so 
it's a hard it's a, a, a demand demand is always supply is much easier to analyze than demand always mm -hmm. it's much much harder to figure out um for instance what true demand elasticity is because like the, the demand elasticity uh, in oil tends to be very inelastic in the short term but uh longer term uh elastic right because if if there if you see a price spike uh, in your earlier scenario of like 150, just persist and stay there, right? You will see behaviors. <clears throat> you will see behaviors change. You will you will see you know mass carpooling. You'll see like you know emerging markets, you know uh, economies, go, you know going to little Vespas and scooters and things like that, right? Um, and you might even see some you know those types of behaviors right. happen here, right? versus versus you know our our suv culture but 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 again that's like that's what i mean by longer term elastic longer term elastic but in the short term in the short term meaning like say six to twelve months shit um you need to drive you need to whatever mode of transportation you have you're stuck with it and you're going you're going to pay uh whatever price is necessary to get to work or get to wherever you need to go Right. So let, let's tie this together. Inflation will continue to be high. If you're right about oil, that will contribute to inflation as well. If inflation is high, the Federal Reserve will particular will, will uh, continue to tighten monetary policy. If their you know, backstop on the banking system uh, is is airtight, how high do you think the Federal Reserve gets? A week ago, the market thought they could get to 5.5%, which would be three more hikes from now. Now it's thinking it can only do one more hike. Uh, what what do you think? Do you, have a, do you have a view in this? And then also, I've seen you say that you think other central banks around the world will be first to blink before the Fed. The Fed will be last to pivot. Why do you think that? I think that because again, um, when you when you look at the relative strength of the U.S. economy, um, you know, I, again, going back to comparing this to say like a GFC type situation, this is not that. We are so far from from that that period. We we still have like three and a half percent unemployment, and and the last several uh, you know uh, employment numbers and and PCE prints have actually been reaccelerating to to the upside. I don't expect that to last, um, but the, the the point is that the uh, the economy still has a head of steam to it. Now you compare and contrast that to say UK, right? UK is in a, the Bank of England is in a, is, is in a real bind because. You know they're experiencing double-digit inflation still, but their GDP is already close to the zero bound. So what are you going to do, right? And then when you come to the big elephant in the room, you know the 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 big uh, post that I released last weekend on my Substack that's pinned on my Twitter right now is I call it a ball in a china shop, specifically the U.S. U.S. dollar wrecking ball. I think, look, I I as I as I uh, prefaced that that blog post, I said, I actually called this Silicon Valley bank situation kind of a provincial crisis. And I, and honest, I honestly think that this BTFP facility uh, has, has basically ring-fenced that. I think the real ticking time bomb for the global financial system is China because China's um, hidden debt so there, they, you know, the all the uh, anti-dollar uh, people uh, like to point out, look, you know, here's, you know, look at China's pristine 
uh, you know, central uh, balance sheet compared to the U.S.'s and the rest of the developed world, blah, 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 except all of it's a facade because this Ch China's uh, banking uh, system is so opaque and obfuscatory, right, that um, this, all of their debt is basically off balance sheet, off the central bank's balance sheet. It's basically between the state-owned enterprises, property developers, and these uh, these uh, LGFVs. Uh, what is it? I can't remember what it stands for. But I mean, to me, it's um, it, it, it literally is a page out of the Enron playbook, except writ large, writ super super large. And so when you when you combine all that together, it's actually the most levered uh, economy. I cite in my in my blog post. Um, I cite um, this interesting work that this guy Andrew Hunt did. Um, I had to listen to his podcast like three times to, to 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 understand the import. But he basically had his team uh, basically hire a bunch of you know like Chinese translators and and basically scrub annual reports of like thirty thirty six of the largest banks in China. And um, he he thinks that the 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 there's a four trillion with a T four trillion dollar uh, gap between what's what uh, China says is in their sort of balance of payments versus what what's actually there, and so when you when you look at when you when you ponder that right, China is in, in a, is in a really really tough spot vis-a-vis -vis all of the world central banks because look they're despite all of their efforts to re, to kind of jumpstart a a true domestic consumer driven economy they're still very much dependent on exports right um, specifically exports to the west now if the west is on this huge hiking uh, uh, policy trying to slow down uh, their economies what's going to happen there right so china needs to really devalue the yuan to 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 try to uh, you know make their exports more attractive, right? And and they also need to do they they need to do it to to revive their moribund economy, but they also need to do it potentially to uh, to to raise capital to pay off their dollar denominated debts. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement: Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Michael, so the dollar-denominated yeah. debts in many emerging market economies, if they want to borrow in their local currency, they have to pay 10%, 20%.
but they can borrow in dollars and only pay 3%. The only problem is they're on the hook for currency risk. So if the their own local currency weakens drastically relative to the dollar, which has happened you know, frequently throughout history, then they have a problem. So you know that that's happened in many emerging markets. Yeah. There's a chart that you know I've I've seen that shows that actual China's dollar denominated loans is actually very very low. Would are you saying that that chart is incorrect because there's lots of hidden stuff? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's and I'm paraphrasing. So there there were a bunch of resources that I cited in my blog post. Um, you know the Andrew Hunt interview, um, a couple of other papers. Um, but basically saying exactly that, exactly that, that not only do you have a uh, duration mismatch, you've got a currency mismatch, and then the underlying collateral is primarily uh, these, these uh, insolvent property developers and even, uh, you know, just uh, insolvent sort of one belt, one road projects like, uh, like that, that uh, ill-fated port in Sri Lanka and Bentota. So lots of, lots and lots of problems. So the, the, and as you say, right, the, so the PBOC, I, I put out this graphic um, in that post. I, I love, again, Greek mythology, Scylla and Charybdis, right? Mm, basically yes. said, look, Odysseus and that ship going through that narrow strait between the Scylla and Charybdis, that's the PBOC right now. On the one side is you've got the, the Scylla of, uh, of, uh, you know, a, a, a weaker uh, yuan, right? So if you have a weaker yuan, you you have that problem, exactly that problem that I, that we just talked about. But you also have you also import um, <clears throat> commodity inflation because again, most commodities in the world, especially oil, are U.S. dollar denominated, right? So if you have a if you experience a one-two punch where the price of the commodity um, ex- uh, uh, experiences some sort of shock, which I think is coming, and you have a strong dollar uh, as a result of our domestic fight against inflation, and also as a result of other central banks' inability to keep up with the Fed, then you've got a double whammy, right? So that's that's the Scylla. <laughs> the Charybdis is, well, what happens if they have too strong of a, of a, of a currency. If they have too strong of a currency. They, they're, they really, really screwed up with basically the, the Evergrande situation and then the zero COVID policy. They basically gutted their domestic economy and they're flogging a dead horse, I like to call it, by trying to stimulate like crazy. And so you saw uh, the, the yuan strengthen a little bit, uh, uh, I think, last month when uh, in, I think, January, uh, there, there were these uh, Chinese PMI numbers that showed, mm-hmm. oh, you know, huge, huge rebound, blah, 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 blah. Well, again, um, as, uh, as Lakshmi correctly points out uh, from Capital One, she goes, the PMI index is a diffusion index. It's mm-hmm. a measure of breadth and not yeah. depth. But then the other the other thing is that and just just explain that. So uh, yeah, something above 50, 52 indicates growth. Something below fifty indicates contraction. But if you're exactly. starting from an absurdly low base, then exactly. anything that's 50, a fifty one means you, you know you went from very horrible to slightly less bad. You know, 
so so it looks like this unbelievable recovery right but then but then when you put it into perspective i think that the total amount of stimulus was something like six uh trillion yuan of stimulus and look at where oil is where's the chinese reopening um you know so so if, if right, but michael as you and alexander have pointed out the, uh, the <laughs> chinese reopening can be robust and the price of oil not go up a lot because unlike in the US, uh, you know, fuel demand, jet fuel demand is only like, you know, three or 4%. And this is you know, numbers I got on Twitter from you and from Alexander. Uh, and, and, and driving demand, it's, it's all about those refineries that are producing products to be sold to the rest of the world. It's a you know, productive economy, not a consum consumer economy like the, the US or, or um, Europe. And then also you pointed out many, many vulnerabilities within the Chinese financial system, but there's one strength that it has that the West does not have, which is that China has low inflation. China has room to stimulate. It, ha it has low inflation until, um, until um, it is forced to devalue its currency. So that's, I think that's the conundrum, right? Because it, I, I think what a strong dollar does is if it, it effectively exports our inflation. And, and um, you know, one of the, Sort of exorbitant privileges of being the global reserve means that you know most uh, commodities are U.S. dollar denominated. So look, there's there's all this talk about you know the the you know the Xi visit to Saudi Arabia, how they're going to start like you know um, you know settling uh, trades and yuan. There's a big difference between settling uh, oil trade and yuan versus pricing and settling. Um, uh, there. Trades have settled in non-dollar currencies for a long time, but it has not happened uh, where you've had uh, basically the the oil trade get traded and invoiced in and settled in non-dollar currency. I think it's very very difficult to do. I I like to use the uh, um, oh and then and then the other thing is that you know so so she it is it was she. She came back with great fanfare saying that, yeah, you know, his, his hope is that uh, they're going to uh, do more, uh, you know, yuan based oil trade. But as far as I know, I don't think anything has been inked there. And so it, it's quite interesting, right? All you hear is the fanfare of these visits. And then nobody talks about everybody saying, okay, you know, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has uh, left. The fold of the U.S. and uh, is going to China's sphere. What just happened this morning, Jack? The, this massive Boeing deal with uh, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> no one talks about that, right? Um, so, so yeah, yeah, if I'm Mohammed bin Salman, I have to think. Okay, do I? I, I use the Amazon card uh, sort of uh, uh, Amazon credit analogy. If I get a refund on a purchase on Amazon. If it's 50 bucks, I'm happy to keep it as an Amazon credit, okay? But if it's $5,000, I want my cash back. And so I think from, from MBS's standpoint, it's very, very similar. Like, okay, if, if China's a big customer, I wanna keep them happy. If I'm gonna do like a, put a token amount of, uh, sell a token amount of oil, and keep a little bit of Chinese yuan, sure. 
but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sacrifice my global treasury into a currency that's got a closed capital count and is subject to, to devaluation. <clears throat> that makes sense. So there's the hardcore bear case on the dollar, not only on the price level of the dollar against other currencies, but on the usage of the dollar, the dollar standard will fall and it will fall within a matter of years and it will give way to the euro replacing it, the yuan replacing it, uh, another uh, IMF Bancor, gold standard, Bitcoin standard, all the all that stuff. Um, and that narrative, yeah, I think it has a lot of challenges. I mean, for example, to have a reserve currency, almost by definition, it has to, the, the country has to run a, a deficit. So China runs a surplus, but it, there's no assets for anyone else. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What about the, soft, the softer dollar case, which is, okay, the dollar standard will remain, the dollar will remain the, the global reserve currency for the near future, mid future, you know, <clears> 10 years, <throat> whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll give that to you, Michael. But Russia, when it is, has its uh, reserve assets, it's going to buy fewer U.S. denominated assets such as you know treasuries, and it's going to buy gold instead. China is going to buy fewer U.S. treasuries. It's going to buy gold instead. Japan, Japanese investors, they're tired of the of you know for for so long they've relied on U.S. treasuries. They're going to abandon those as well. What do you think about that, that softer argument? That argument has has uh, has big problems because at the end of the day, you still need, you're not going to spend your gold at the grocery store. You're not going to spend your gold at, uh, at, uh, you know, the market or, and, and buy stuff. You, you, you need a liquid, uh, fiat as your primary, uh, medium of exchange. And there simply is no other fiat that comes close to that adoption. There's a, I, I, I posted in one of my threads, this, uh, I think I probably used that tweet in my in my, uh, in my that chart of my paper. It basically shows uh, the the global share of FX reserves of all the major currencies. And would you believe? So you know, there's all this talk about de-dollarization and you know the U.S. losing share. Well, guess what? The U.S. share of FX reserves has been essentially sixty percent since 1995. Oh, what happened in 1999? The euro came along. What happened? Oh, if you look over time, yeah, you know, it's it's fluctuated a little bit, right? But the U.S. dollar share has stayed remarkably stable, um, and it's actually the euro, and the euro is the most successful competitor to the U.S. dollar to date as a challenger, and the euro is the one that's actually lost uh, share. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I, as we, as we write in our paper, I think ultimately the, this notion of, uh, you know, Bretton Woods as some sort of Trojan horse that got the world addicted to dollars, uh, and then got rug pulled with the Nixon shock by, you know, uh, abandoning gold convertibility in 1971. I think that's a flawed argument because if you, if you look at what happened what uh, what happened long before then, you know, in the 1950s, you already saw this rise of the euro dollar banking system. And it was primarily because, again, the UK in its own uh, domestic uh, inflation battle, uh, unfortunately, chose the wrong path. They adopted uh, uh, capital controls. And so 
uh, at that time. And, and, and also, look, the UK was heavy, heavily, heavily indebted after uh, World War II, right? So, so, there was, so I, think, I think world businesses needed a liquid reserve alternative. And so I don't buy into this notion that, uh, uh, that you know, everybody is forced to use the dollar. Um, if anything, right, one, one, one thing that we point out in our paper is that we don't agree, we don't advocate this continued use, this heavy-handed use of financial sanctions. When most people talk about the U.S. weaponizing the dollar, they're mm -hmm. talking about what we did to Russia, right? Yes. Seizing reserves and things like that. We don't advocate that in our paper. We're saying that we need to do less of that because that does uh, uh, encourage an active search for alternatives. Why do that? It, you know, to, to, to borrow this uh, framework that Mike Green and I were riffing on in a space, it's kind of like saying, look, we have, it, really what we should be doing is we should be saying we want everybody to play ball in our sports facility. We want to make sure that we have the best, most well-kept sports facility, uh, meaning, you know, system of governance, um, you know, uh, liquidity, depth of bond market, um, um, rule of law, which I, which I said, um, um, and, and, and what makes that that sports facility less attractive, of course, is this heavy-handed use of of, uh, of financial sanctions. So maybe do less of that, right? But but what the other part of our paper was saying that you know there there are other ways to uh, to employ geopolitical leverage, and and one way is to literally kill two birds with one stone. We have a domestic inflation problem, which means that we need to stay higher for longer. We, and it just so happens that the US economy is much more resilient at this point in time, especially vis-a-vis -vis our biggest geopolitical rival. So encourage the world to continue to play in our court. But by the way, our players, to use this analogy, are stronger, our economy is stronger. So let's, let's use that heavier ball the U S dollar wrecking ball. <laughs> right. So <clears throat> a very compelling arguments, Michael. And I also say, even if you're wrong, and even if the people saying that the dollar standard will, will fall, it probably is going to fall in 10 years. It's such a slow moving thing that to make a short-term investment decision on this thesis on your side or on the other side is just horrible. Do you agree? Agreed. 100% <laughs> agree. I think, I think this is a, this is a process that that uh, uh, occurs in decades, if at all, right? But I the the way I see the world going, uh, and I I agree with uh, Brent Johnson on this. I see um, first first let's not conflate adoption to price, okay? Because you know the 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 you know in our in our paper we actually broke this out in a matrix right i talk about this matrix of adoption versus price right so there you have certain currencies that are you know widely uh, relatively widely adopted but are relatively weak so you, you, i i would count for instance like the yen and the euro in, into those categories right you have currencies that are not very uh widely adopted but are relatively strong like the swiss franc 
right? Um, then of course you have emerging market type currencies that are not a, not widely adopted and also also weak. That's not a great place to be. But then you've got this quadrant four, which is the U.S. dollar, where you've got overwhelming adoption, and we're at a point in the macroeconomic cycle where we, we it's it's likely that the the, the U.S. dollar will be stronger um, for longer, and that's that's my opinion. And so when you have when you do have that confluence of high adoption and high strength, that's when you know it it does have the potential to be kind of a wrecking ball. Um, and uh, and you know it's it's a complicated macro picture that we live in because you know that obviously has negative feedback loops. But my point my point is that the U.S. economy is better equipped than most of the world to handle those negative feedback loops. We don't have, we don't rely on exports. We are naturally long natural resources that are denominated in our home currency. Right. Right. So, uh, well, so everything <clears throat> we said is true, but you could spin it either way. We're not relying on exports. That's a strength. You could also say, yeah, well, that means that we consume more than we produce. So we every year have a deficit. We produce debt, and ultimately those claims, you know. Uh, are going to be called upon. And as interest rates rise, the debt isn't sustainable. I know we've been going a long time, but just you know, real quick, uh, at what point do you think the debt becomes unsustainable? Because presumably there is a point. It's been far you know, longer than the, the people who said the dollar's not going to last in 2011, 2012, when we started QE, or not when we started QE. But, um, but what is the point? Because you know, we have seen that chart of the interest expense explode higher as the Federal Reserve has hiked. Yes, uh, interest that, that phenomenon has not stopped the Federal Reserve from hiking, but you know it does play into those dynamics. I think we have a lot longer than what most people think. Um, you know, there's a there's a very interesting book uh, by I think his name is Andrew, is it, no Richard Duncan, Richard Duncan, um, and Mike Green actually uh, interviewed him on a on a Twitter space uh, where he, he, it's interesting. I don't agree with everything that he's saying, but where I agree with him is the thesis that, you know, when you are the, the, the world's global reserve, right. The, the fact that you run persistent trade deficits, that's, that's a feature and not a bug. That's part of it because you, you are by definition absorbing, uh, uh, surplus from, from other countries. Right. Now his point is that, <clears throat> If that is the, let's just take that as gospel. If that is the case, let's uh, adopt uh, focused industrial policy and and spend that money um, appropriately. Um, so you know, it, you know, so so he's actually advocating, for instance, expanding our 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 uh, deficit by the tune of 10 trillion, but on focused industrial policy, industrial spending. Um, interesting concept, um, interesting concept. But look, when you, when you look at uh, Japan, uh, that is in far worse shape from a geopolitical demographic, natural resource dependency standpoint, and you look at what they've done with their, with their uh, sovereign balance sheet, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should do that. But I'm saying that it kind of shows you that um, the trust, trust in a in a currency system goes far beyond pure debt to GDP metrics. 
the whole focus of the first third of our paper is exactly to this point, is that it's a big mistake, I think, to uh, just ascribe debt to GDP metrics as oh, this is what's holding together the, the uh, you know, a, 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 the world's trust in a currency. And what our paper talks about is trust ultimately comes down to national power, different components of national power. And we focus on three components of three economic pillars of national power, meaning uh, being um, geography, um, natural resources, and industrial capacity. So, Thanks, Michael. Uh, it's been great getting your view on the dollar, why the dollar is here to stay. Uh, I'm actually be talking to Lynn Alden later in this week, so I'm going to get the, the opposite view. So it'll be, be fun to uh, sort of hear, hear both sides of it. But, uh, Michael, just uh, you on Twitter are fantastic, and you're at Urban Cowboy. Uh, cow spells your last name, K-A-O. And you've got a, a Substack Cowboy Musings, again, K-K-A-O. So yeah, it's, it's, ur- it's also urbancowboy.substack.com urbancowboy.sub.com. Thank, thank you so much. And um, so could you wrap a bow on the idea that the, the bailouts for you, know, that the, the help that the government provided to the banks is going to produce financial stability, you know, likely prevent, you know, a systemic banking crisis. And as a result, the Federal Reserve will hike higher. Cause that, that's, I think that the, your general thesis of, of the sort of this interview. Yeah. Look, I, I, I don't know how much hike, how much higher they will hike. Uh, but I do think that the general path of tightening remains because I go back to my point that uh, weighing the needs of many versus the few, right? And I think that inflation being the most uh, regressive tax of all that impacts 100% of the population, they're going to they're they're going to think about that first and foremost. I think the the risk reward is is uh, very very uh, asymmetrically bad if they ease prematurely. I just don't see them. And, and none of the data is giving them cover to do that. Now, there, I think there will come a point in time when the real trade-off comes. But for now, this BTFP facility, I think, has basically, they've, they've learned some lessons, right, in terms of producing some, a consistent response, as we opened the hour with, and I think that's that's ring fenced the damage. This is nowhere close to a GFC situation, and, and especially when you consider the, the the backdrop of structural inflation. So, I I I I think I am definitely in the higher for longer camp. Um, I await this yield curve to kind of uh, breathe a little bit after some of this uh, banking angst die, uh, dies down, but uh, we'll see. We will see. Michael Cow, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks, Jack. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.